Well, this morning we're going to start something rather large. We are going to begin to look into the Gospel of Luke, which is the largest of the four Gospels, the most detailed, and my personal favorite. It was about six years ago that I started teaching through the Gospel of Luke in a Sunday school class when I was pastoring a church in Idaho. And after a year and a half, I made it through chapter six. And during that time, I was being investigated by a church from Burbank, California, to see if it might be God's will for me to move there and pastor that church. And in the providence of God, it came to pass and I probably had the busiest summer I ever had that summer before coming here, I was working with a publisher to get a book finished. I was working to get my doctoral studies completed. I was trying to sell and pack up a house in Idaho and purchase and begin the enduring restoration of a house here in Burbank. I was team teaching Luke with a fellow elder and I would write the studies. And if I was in town, I would teach them if I wasn't preaching. And then when I was gone, he was teaching um, through the studies that I wrote. And the last study in the summer of 2000 was at Luke chapter 6, verse 26, right when it was really getting to the good part of Luke, right into the meat of Jesus's ministry. And so like an unloving parent, I abandoned Luke as a parent as a child and neglected it. And it has haunted me. And I told myself, I'm going to finish that book because I like to get things done. I like to finish things. I, I like to take on big projects, but I like to get them done too. And so what we are going to do is we are going to finish the book of Luke. And for those of you who are not there in Idaho, we're going to start from the beginning. So you won't miss those first six chapters. And some of you in your late 30s and early 40s may be wondering if you will ever finish Luke before you die. <laughs> but I want to encourage you that um, we are going to try and do that. I know there is a uh, very well-known expositor in a large church near here that uh, has been pre preaching and preaching through Luke. I think he started into the Christmas narrative of Luke one Christmas and the next Christmas he was still there. I am going to go faster than that, I hope. So put your hearts at ease. I am going to teach Luke in a little different way. I'm not going to try and uh, do a doctrinal study of every word. I'm not going to try and teach all four Gospels through Luke or the whole Bible through Luke. I'm going to try and teach it as a narrative. And so we will be usually taking larger pieces um, rather than smaller pieces as we did as we went through First Timothy. Yet there will be times when I will slow down because of the theological content is significant and rich. But for the most part, we will be making a good pace through it as we look at different stories and parables and portions of narrative. And I think that you will enjoy Luke because we will approach it a little different way than maybe you're used to um, hearing. But my primary reason to do Luke is I want you to know Jesus I want you to know Jesus better. I want you to fall in love with him in a deeper way 
so that the whole of your ministry is founded upon the person of Jesus Christ, whom you know and whom you love in a great way. And since we are going to start in a gospel, I thought it would also be good to just ask and answer some general questions that people frequently have um, when you start talking about the gospel. So this morning is going to be one of those rare occurrences where, where you will probably leave not feeling too convicted. And this is your, this is the only Sunday, believe me. Um, my usual uh, plan of attack is to make sure everybody's convicted and leaves ready to obey God or wanting to obey God. But this morning we are going to ask and answer seven common questions, which will give us a general overview of all of the gospels. Then next week we will get into Luke and uh, look at those first five verses and begin to learn some great and wonderful truths from this particular gospel. So let's answer, ask and answer some questions. Who wrote the Gospels? Well, first of all, we know that God wrote the Gospels. Uh, the reason we call the Bible the Word of God is because it is the Word of God. And we know from the Scriptures that all Scripture is God-breathed or inspired by God, 2 Timothy 3.16. We also know from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own private interpretation, but men who were moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And so God is the primary author of all four Gospels and all the books of the Bible. But each of the Gospels also has a human author through whom the Holy Spirit spoke. And the first in our New Testament is Matthew. He is the author of the first Gospel. Matthew was a tax gatherer called by Jesus to be an apostle. And if you know anything about Matthew's gospel um, and Matthew himself, you know that Matthew, being a tax gatherer, had a very lucrative business. Basically, what would happen is if you had enough money, you could basically purchase the franchise, so to speak, to collect taxes. And so Matthew would go around collecting taxes from his own countrymen, the Jews, and if he collected more than was required by Rome, the quota that was given him, he could keep all the rest. And so, of course, tax gatherers did that. And because they did that, they were despised. They were the worst um, sinners, the, the biggest lowlifes and treasonous traitors of Israel. And so they were uh, very hated by the Jews because of the work they did for Rome and um, just uh, using their own brethren and their own people for personal gain, and they were despised. But after Matthew was called by Jesus, he left that business. And one of the first things he did is he gathered all of his heathen despised, social outcast, sinful friends and invited them to a big dinner so that they could meet the Messiah and so that they might believe and be saved. The second gospel was written by Mark. Mark was not an apostle. He was a disciple of the apostle Peter. For a while, he traveled with Paul and Barnabas, later with Barnabas. Mark seemed to have a rough beginning because in Pamphylia, he kind of choked. We don't know the details, but he departed from Paul. 
He flamed out in the ministry at burnout or whatever. We don't know the details. All we know is that when Paul needed him, he left and went back home. And this bothered Paul a lot. As a matter of fact, when you read Acts 15, you discover that Mark was not even welcome with Paul. Paul had such a bad taste about Mark that he said, I I don't want this guy going with me. Do you remember what he did? And there was a disagreement between Barnabas and Paul who were very close. And so Barnabas ended up taking Mark. And Paul parted company with both of them. Mark is also called John In Acts, he is called John Mark, or John who is called Mark in the book of Acts. But later on, Mark seems to have proved himself, or maybe Paul just realized he had been too critical of Mark. We don't know, but when Paul was penning his last letter, the letter of 2 Timothy, in the last chapter, almost his last words that he wrote before he died were, 2 Timothy 4.11, pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. So either Mark redeemed himself or Paul just realized Mark was your average sinner and lightened up, but their relationship was mended towards the end of Paul's ministry. Luke was also a close traveling companion of Paul. And Luke seems to have been highly educated. His gospel is the most well-written gospel, just as Isaiah is the most well-written of the major prophets. So Luke is the most well-written of the gospels. Luke is called the beloved physician in Colossians 4.14. And this may account for Luke's detailed descriptions of illnesses in the gospel. When you read the, the descriptions, he likes to go into all the detail about the demon-possessed person or the, this woman with a specific kind of sickness. And he tries to go into great detail. He seemed to be fascinated with that since he was a doctor. Luke, like Mark, was not an apostle, but was a close friend and traveling a companion of the apostle Paul. And Luke also wrote the book of Acts, and both of them together are his kind of history of the life of Christ and the beginning of the church. He wrote both of his books for a friend, a friend named Theophilus. And we will learn about Theophilus a little bit next week and more about Luke. Finally, there is the gospel of John. John, um, who was another one of the apostles, uh, was the one of the sons of thunder, just a very bold and courageous man. He was the he is the author of not only the Gospel of John but First, Second, Third John and Revelation. He was a fisherman by trade, and he was the brother of James. He was one of the innermost circle of the apostles who were closest to Jesus and often received special treatment, special instruction, privileges that the others didn't have. So those are the human authors of the four Gospels. The word gospel means good news. And the good news is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He came to live a perfect life. He died for the sins of the world, was buried and rose again on the third day so that anyone who is willing to repent of their sins and receive him as savior, savior might be 
given the gift of everlasting life and forgiven of all their trespasses. And when speaking about the Gospels, we often like to talk about Matthew's Gospel and John's Gospel. It would be better to say the Gospel according to Matthew or the Gospel according to John because there is just one Gospel. It's not that there are four different versions of different gospels there's only one gospel but four different accounts by four different people all four authors are writing about the one true gospel and it wasn't until later that one of the early church fathers used the gospel in plural if you look in the new testament it's always singular the gospel but an early church father writing about the different authors of the gospel used gospels plural, and that seemed to stick and has been used ever since. But why four gospels? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, why don't we have four books of Romans? Why don't we have, you know, four books of Acts? Why not, you know, four Second Corinthians? Why four gospels? Well, there are many reasons, and I think that... Uh, I don't pretend to know all of them. I don't pretend to know the mind of God, but some I think are pretty obvious. Let's just say that you had a very close friend who was in the military, was a hero because he died in battle saving the lives of some other people. Now, would you want to hear about how your friend died from one person or four who are all eyewitnesses? You see, that's why there's four Gospels, because four people often tell more detail than just one. Though all the witnesses would be telling you about the one story of your friend's heroism, they would all include little different details, because when they were there, they saw it from maybe a little different perspective. Maybe they knew the person in a different way. Maybe they heard little things before or after. And so their story, though of the same story, would be slightly different because they are different individuals. And this is surely one reason why there are four Gospels. Another reason is that each author wrote their account for a different purpose, trying to emphasize a different theme, and was directed at a different audience. And so when you're looking at the Gospels, you need to remember that each Gospel writer is has in his mind, I am going to write this to this group of people. I am going to emphasize this certain aspect of Jesus. I am writing for this specific purpose, emphasizing these specific things. And because of that, The Gospels are different. Matthew, for instance, presents Christ as the Messiah, the Jewish king who fulfills all the prophecies of the Old Testament. And so when you're going through Matthew's Gospel, you will see constant quotes of the New Testament. This is to fulfill. This is to fulfill. This is to fulfill. Because Matthew is trying to convince Jews. He's writing to Jews. And so his whole Gospel is very Jewish, very Jewish. I came across an instance of this when I was studying the kingdom of God. And I was going through and I was looking at the different synonyms, you know, kingdom of Christ, kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. And I noticed something very interesting. Matthew employs the phrase kingdom of heaven 32 times, but it is never used anywhere else, only in his gospel. 
He only uses the, the title kingdom of God four times. And the, the times he uses it is when he's giving a direct quotation of Jesus. But whenever he talks about it, he uses kingdom of heaven. And the reason he does that is he knows that Jews are very sensitive about using God's name. So instead of calling it the kingdom of God, which Luke uses, I think, 31 times, he uses kingdom of heaven because he wants to be sensitive to his Jewish audience. Mark, on the other hand, writes to Gentiles. And hence his doesn't have a lot of the Jewish flavor that Matthew does. Mark is trying to to write kind of a huge gospel tract so he can convince Gentile readers that Jesus is the Messiah. And if they repent and believe, they too will be saved. While Matthew emphasizes a lot of Jesus's teaching, I mean, uh, when you look at the Sermon on the Mount, almost all the instances of Jesus's teaching in Matthew are longer than any other place. Mark doesn't mention a lot of Jesus's teachings. As a matter of fact, when he does mention one of Jesus's teaching, it's very summarized and shortened. Because Mark is emphasizing action. Mark wants to show what Jesus did. And it's as if his whole gospel is racing towards Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And Mark loves to employ the word immediately. It appears all the way through his gospel over and over again, 40 times in the 16 chapters. He says, and immediately Jesus went, and immediately Jesus did, and immediately Jesus said, and immediately Jesus went. He's talking about, he's just trying to get you. When you read the book, it's kind of like, you know, it starts making you hyperventilate. He's just, he's just driving you to the death burial and resurrection of Christ. And so Mark has a whole different emphasis. And whenever he speaks of Jewish things, a lot of times he describes them or he explains things that wouldn't be common to the average person. For instance, in Mark chapter seven, verses one through two, the Pharisees are kind of irritated because Jesus' uh, disciples sat down to eat and they didn't wash their hands and go through this man-made traditions that uh, the Pharisees had concocted. And Mark wants to talk about that, but he knows his Gentile readers don't understand why the Pharisees would be bothered by people not washing their hands before they eat. And this is what he says in verses 3 and 4. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. So Mark includes little Jewish background information in his gospel so his Gentile readers can understand enough to understand the main plot that he is laying out for his readers. So all three of those gospels, Matthew presents Jesus as the Messiah, the King. Mark presents Jesus as the servant. And Luke presents him as the son of man, that he is a human, 
God in human flesh. And he gives us a lot of detail about Jesus's humanity more than any other gospel writer. For the Jew, Luke presents Jesus as a Messiah who fulfills the Old Testament prophecy, but he also addresses the Gentile readers because he's often um, talking about Gentiles who are involved in Jesus' ministry and often mentions promises from the Old Testament given to the Gentiles. He went, he's writing to Gentiles and Jews. Luke also has a very strong emphasis on women. As you read Luke's gospel, instead of having males as the major figures all the way through, a lot of times females are the major figures. He talks about Mary, he talks about Elizabeth. As a matter of fact, he mentions 13 women in his gospel that are not mentioned anywhere else in any other gospel. He also has a very strong emphasis on prayer. And Luke wants everyone to know that the Son of Man came to save Jews to save Gentiles, to save the rich, to save the poor, and even the despised and social outcasts. He, we, we see present a lot of instances where people who are real down and outers, he goes into great detail to explain Jesus even reached out to just the very despised, the very outcasts of society. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke follow the life of Jesus in a similar manner, and hence they are called the synoptic gospels. If you've ever heard that phrase, it just means the similar gospels because they kind of have a similar structure. And while each gospel includes different things, all of them include the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they often include different teachings, and sometimes they include the same teachings, and sometimes the same teachings are a little bit different. Because they leave things out or add things. And finally, we come to the fourth gospel, which is the gospel of John. John's gospel is very unique because John, he is presenting Jesus as the son of God. So there is Christ the king, Christ the servant, Christ the son of man, and Christ the son of God in John's gospel. And instead of just tracing the life of Jesus like the other gospel writers, John takes seven of Jesus' key miracles and he structures his gospel, the heart of his gospel, around those seven miracles. And it seems clear that John has Jewish believers and unbelievers in his, in his mind when he's writing he likes to emphasize a lot of of Jewish things, especially things that are related to the Old Testament. He's looking back into the Old Testament. He draws off a lot of Old Testament imagery about light and darkness and shepherds and bread and spirit and truth. And he, he uses these metaphors over and over. And as a matter of fact, he uses them in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and Revelation also. And you can see that... John has a specific purpose because he's trying to show people that Jesus was actually God incarnate. Luke, he was actually a man. Mark, he was a servant. Matthew, he was a king. And so all four of the Gospels together give us a very clear picture of Jesus. He is the king and the exalted one. He is the humble servant. He is fully man and he is fully God. And that is why we have four Gospels.
You can imagine how much more difficult it would be to try and present all four of those themes simultaneously in one book. But there are problems with four Gospels. The problems are that having four authors emphasizing four different themes, focusing on four different audiences, sometimes there appears to be contradictions. And this leads us to our third question. How do you account for the differences in parallel accounts? Well, we've answered it already to some degree. There are differences in gospel accounts because there's different authors, different themes, different purposes for writing. And so there's going to be differences. Let's say you had a friend, two friends who both witnessed a, you know, a terrible accident where, you know, cars collided and they were both sitting there in the corner having a cup of coffee and saw the whole thing. And you took each of those friends out to lunch and you said, Hey, tell me what happened at the accident. And one of them who was a, a male and he was really into cars said, Oh man, you should have seen the one. It was this classic 66 Mustang convertible with the 289. And he's giving you all these details about the car. And man, you should have seen the hood. It was all buckled up. He's talking about the, the, the physical specifications and, uh, and, and the, the crunching and, and, you know, the architecture of what was happening of the cars that collided. And he goes into great detail. And yeah, and there was skid marks and it sounded like this. And after listening to him, you would think, man, that was a car accident. <laughs> then you take the other person out to lunch, a woman, a woman who is the mother of small three children. And one of the cars in the accidents had a child in the back who was crying through all of this. She never mentions the car make. She doesn't tell you the model. She doesn't tell you the size of the engine, the color or how it was crinkled or anything about the skid marks. She is focusing on the mother and the child who was in the car. She goes into great detail saying, and the mother was, 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 you know, really dazed and she was slumped over the steering wheel and the child was crying and crying. And she's very emotional. She's, when she tells you the story, she's emotional because she's thinking about her children and what it'd be like for them to be in the accident. And so she gives you a whole different picture of the exact same event, but together Taking what the man told you and what the woman told you, you would have a much fuller account of what actually happened than if you just had one witness. And so that is why there are differences in the gospel accounts. Each author sees things from their own perspective with their own little ideas and their own emphasis. And so you have differences. And this leads us to the fourth point. How do you harmonize parallel accounts? I mean, sometimes the differences are hard to deal with. You look at one gospel and it says this, and the other gospel says that, and you think, well, they can't both be true, can they? Well, how do you deal with that? Well, you deal with it by first remembering that God is perfect and he cannot err. And therefore, his word, the Bible, cannot err. And so there are no contradictions in the word of God. There are only apparent contradictions. That is the first thing you realize. 
Secondly, you must remember that each gospel writer did not try to say everything they could have said. Only what they thought they needed to say in order to fulfill their purpose for writing. Third, you must examine each parallel account in its own context so you can discover the whole truth. And there are excellent resources to help you do this. There are what are called harmonies of the gospel. Now, the one I like is by Robert Thomas and Stan Gundry, where they take all four gospels and they put them in parallel columns side by side so you can see all the accounts and see the differences and similar. On some pages, you just have John because his is... You know, by itself, a lot of things he says aren't in the other Gospels. And then some places, two Gospels speak of the same thing. Sometimes three. When it comes to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, all four of them speak. And so you can look at that and study them. Let's say you're at work. And you work in an office building and there's a parking lot out front in front of your office building. And you can't see it from your office. And you're sitting there in your office. And outside in the parking lot, there is a green truck a red truck, a red convertible, and a white two-door sedan. Those four vehicles are out there in front of your office building in the parking lot. And one of your coworkers comes in and says, hey, there's a green truck outside. Another one of your coworkers comes in and says, hey, there's a red truck out front in the parking lot. Another comes in and says, hey, there's a red convertible in the parking lot. And finally, another comes in and says, hey, there are four vehicles out front, and one of them is a white two-door sedan. Now you have four different accounts of what's happening in the parking lot. All of them are radically different. All of them are true. All of those people said the correct thing. So you must be careful when you're looking at the Gospels not to assume that every gospel writer said everything that could have been said. One of the instances of this is when you look at Matthew and you look at Luke in the the episode or the instance of the Gerizim demoniac, you find out that there are two men who are demon-possessed, but one of the writers only mentions one. So, One mentions the green truck, the other mentions the green and the red. And because they have a different purpose. So don't think that there is a contradiction just because all the information that could have been given was not. When studying the Gospels and you're trying to harmonize things, you need to realize that you look at all the parallel accounts to figure out what exactly is true. And to example, as an example of this, I want to take, take you to uh, this classic instance. Turn to Matthew 27. Matthew 27. Let's look and find out what was written on the sign that Pilate put on the cross. The inscription that Pilate had nailed to the cross. That Jesus was crucified on. Matthew 27, 37 says this. And above his head, they put up the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. So Matthew tells us 
that the inscription on the cross said, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Now, turn over to Mark chapter 15. And look at verse 26. Here we learn that the inscription of the charge against Jesus read, The King of the Jews. Okay, let's turn to Luke chapter 23. Break in those new Bibles. Look at verse 38. This is when somebody is saying, verse 37, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now, there was also an inscription above him. And then they read the inscription. Luke records the inscription as this is the king of the Jews. Now, notice that Luke's, Luke adds this is to make it more emphatic. Mark says the inscription was the king of the Jews. Luke adds, this is the king of the Jews. Matthew puts, this is, makes it emphatic. Jesus, the king of the Jews, telling us that the name Jesus was also there. And the reason Matthew probably included that is because Jesus comes from the Old Testament name Joshua, which means Yahweh is salvation. And he wants his readers to know that this is Yahweh's salvation and the promised Messiah King. So turn to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. And John gives us the most detailed account of what was written. Look at verse 19 of John 19. Notice what it says. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, don't make it emphatic, but that he said, I'm the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. So when you put all four of these accounts together, what do you get? We know that what was written on the on that inscription is this is Jesus the Nazarene the king of the Jews. And if you went to Matthew you wouldn't know everything or Luke or Mark or even John. But you put all four of them together and you understand the big picture. And that is how you harmonize the gospels. Now, here's another question. Did Jesus say some things more than once? And definitely he did. In fact, sometimes he uses the same basic story, maybe a parable or an illustration, and he gives it 
And then he just makes adjustments, but he's speaking at a different place at a different time to a different group of people. And I want you to know, you cannot harmonize these kind of texts because they aren't parallel. And what happens is, is sometimes you'll be reading, you'll be reading through the gospel and you'll come across an instance where you say, hey, Jesus is teaching about this. And all of a sudden, well, that's not what he said in, you know, the another gospel. Well, this seems to contradict itself. And oftentimes it's just two different occurrences in two different times in two different places where Jesus said almost the same thing. An example of this is when you compare Luke 19 and the parable of the minas with Matthew 25 and the parable of the talents. Now in Luke 19, the parable of the minas, each servant is given a mina, a certain amount of money to invest while the master is away. The master goes away. The different servants invest the mina. Some make quite a bit. Some make a little bit. One gets scared and he just hides it. In Matthew 25, you have the parable of the talents where in a very similar way, servants are given These talents, a certain amount of money, and the master goes away, he comes back. One has made quite a bit, another a little bit, another one got scared and hit it. Both in Luke and in Matthew, they speak of basically the same thing. And you may, some people read this and they think, well, you know, maybe the kind of money is irrelevant, you know, talents, minas, quarters, nickels, who cares? Um, you know, it seems to be the same thing. It's so similar. And then they try and take that account in Matthew 25 and they try and match it up with Luke 19 and they're trying to make them fit and they just can't quite do it. That's because they're two different episodes. Even though there are parallels in both parables, three groups are noted. The first who make the most profit, the second who make a little bit, and the third who, because of fear, make no return on the master's money. In both parables, the slave who didn't invest his money is severely rebuked, told he should have at least put the money in the bank and received interest on it. In both parables, the slave who made no profit was... Uh, has um, what was given to him taken away and given to the one who made the most money. In both parables, the lazy, wicked, fearful slave is executed. One is cast into outer darkness. The other is brought before the king and slain in his presence. The difference is, is that Matthew 25 is talking about the parable of the talents when Jesus was speaking on the, the Mount of Olives and the Olivet Discourse just right near Jerusalem. In the other instance, in Luke 19, Jesus tells the parable on his way to Jerusalem. Though similar, both parables are different. Different emphasis, different group of people, but the same basic teaching and same basic structure. And so you must be careful when you're studying the Gospels not to assume that because things are similar, they're parallel accounts. You have to look in the context and be careful. Six, do the Gospels apply to us since they were written in the Old Testament era before the church existed? You know, if you've ever run into somebody called a hyper-dispensationalist, sounds scary, doesn't it? Um, These are people who tell you, listen, the Gospels are written in the Old Testament era. Jesus was under the law of Moses. He was a Jew under the law and taught Jews under the law. And so none of the Gospels apply to us. 
that they don't apply to us at all. We, we, we don't have to obey anything in the gospel. They would argue, for instance, that the Beatitudes don't apply to us. The problem with this sort of view is that all scripture is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, even Leviticus. Every written thing in the Bible, both in the Old Testament and New Testament, is written for our instruction so that we may grow in respect to godliness. Romans 15.4 All of it is written for our example so that we can learn to do what is right. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 6 and 11. And sure, there are certain instances in the gospel where Jesus is encouraging Jews who are under the law to keep the law, let's say, keep the Sabbath or tithe or whatever. And the New Testament clearly shows that we don't have to do those things. And so, yes, in those specific instances, we would say we don't have to do that exact thing, but the principles still apply. But the letters to the churches include the teachings of Christ. That's where the apostles got their ammunition. Jesus, according to Paul, is the foundation of the church. He is the cornerstone. They were taught by Jesus and the apostles wrote Jesus' words to us in the letters to the churches. That is why the New Testament in Galatians 6 says we are under the law of Christ, the teachings of Christ. Let's consider the Sermon on the Mount, for instance, which teaches us that Christians are to be poor in spirit and mourn over their sin. Are we still to do that? Or should we be happy about our sin? Are you still to be gentle? Are you still to hunger and thirst after righteousness? Are you to be a peacemaker? Are you to be pure in heart? Are you to be, are you to be, are you blessed when people persecute you? Are you still to be the salt and light of the world? Are you to teach people to obey the word of God? Are you to obey the word of God? Are you to avoid being angry with your brother? Are you to be reconciled with others before worshiping God? Are you to avoid lustful thoughts and acts of adultery? Are you to do everything you can to avoid sinning. These are just some of the things that Jesus taught in just the Sermon on the Mount. Are you trying to tell me those things don't apply? If they don't, you aren't a Christian. That is Christianity. That's what it means to live life for Christ. All those things apply to all God's children, whether it be in the Old Testament or the New Testament. Don't listen to the person who tells you that any part of the Bible doesn't apply. It all applies, and it may not apply specifically. In other words, we don't have to offer sacrifices, but even the, the, the sections that speak of the sacrificial system teach us principles which still apply, things about God that we must know and live by. Now, there's one more question that is often asked that I would like to address. This will be our last one related to the question we just answered, how do you know what promises and commands still apply? This is a major one. You, know, you have some people going to the Gospels and just plucking things out and saying, well, you know, Matthew says, or Luke says, or John says, and it says it there, and so it's true of all of us. I had this happen last week after the service. Somebody came up and took something out of context, out of one of the Gospels, and said, hey, I can do this. I said, no, you can't. I said, yes, I can. It says right in. I said, no, no. Who's who's Jesus speaking to? 
They didn't know. What was the context? They didn't know. So the question is this. When you go to the gospel and there's promises and commands, how do you know which ones apply to you? Which ones are universal for all of the church or which ones are particular for a different for a specific group of people or a certain person? Well, first thing you do is see if the promise is universal. You look for something like whosoever will or anyone who type statements. You know, John 316, that whoever believes in him would have everlasting life. Whoever. That is a universal statement. Second, look to see if a promise is personal. For instance, in John 14, 26, Jesus says to the disciples that he is instructing in the upper room on Passover night before he's crucified that the Holy Spirit will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Jesus is saying, listen, I'm going to die, but the Holy Spirit is going to cause you to remember everything I said. Supernatural remembrance. In Mark 13:11 and Luke 12:11 both contain promises that are similar where Jesus says to the disciples, "Do not worry about what you are to speak, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you are to say." Then I've heard people tell me that, "Oh yeah, well I don't need to worry." You know, I get up to teach and, you know, I just trust, you know, the words of Jesus that the Holy Spirit is going to give me what I need at that moment so I can speak. It's like, listen, pal, Jesus was speaking to the disciples. You want to find out what you're to do, go to 2 Timothy 2.15 and study diligently to present yourself approved as a workman unto God because you are shameful. If you don't handle accurately the word of truth. And I'm sure you have heard verses like this quoted out of context where people just come to the gospels and just assume that every promise, every command is to them or they selectively pick the ones that they wish were of them. And they say, yeah, because it said it's it. But you got to look at the context and see who's being addressed and why. Third, look at the text to see if a promise is conditional. For instance, you know, like James 4.8 says, draw near unto God and he will draw near unto you. Well, you can't just say, hey, God's going to draw near unto you. You have to meet the condition, right? An example of this is Matthew 18. Have you ever heard this? This is so, this is tortured. This is a tortured text, famous tortured text, where two or three are gathered together in my name. There I am in their midst. Well, listen, Jesus is in your midst right now. He's everywhere. You can't escape him. What is that passage talking about? A lot of people don't know. What is the subject being addressed? Most people don't know. Well, let me tell you. The passage is talking about church discipline. After you confront a professing believer who is in sin and they refuse to repent, and then... You go to them with two or three, and they still refuse to repent. Then you are to make the decision to remove them from the church so that they don't corrupt the believer. So you can maintain your witness. So you can hopefully put such pressure on them that they will repent. And then in that context, after those conditions are met, Jesus says, 
where two or three are gathered together in my name concerning the expulsion of an unrepentant professing believer, there I am there in their midst backing up their decision to do just that because it's a hard thing to do. That's what it means. So you can't just pluck things out of context. It is true that Jesus is with us if two or three are gathered together, but I want you to know if one of you is by yourself, he's there. Fourth and finally, look to see if the promise is for all times or a specific time. Sometimes when you go through and you're reading one of the Gospels, you'll find that there is a time reference attached to a promise. And if that's the case, then you want to make sure that you acknowledge that time reference. Okay. So that's our little introduction of the Gospels. That will get us ready. Who wrote the Gospels? God, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Why four Gospels? To emphasize different themes, address different audiences, to write for a different purpose, to present a fuller account. How do you account for differences? Different authors, different perspectives, different themes, purposes, and audiences. How do you harmonize the accounts? Remember that God, being perfect, cannot err. His word cannot err. Remember? To look at each verse in its context and understand each one in its context and understand that all authors didn't say everything they could. Five, did Jesus say some things more than once? Yes. Don't fall into the trap of assuming that a similar story is actually a parallel account. Six, do the gospel still apply to us? Yes. All scripture applies as profitable. Seven, how do you know a promise or command applies to you? Look at the context. Is it universal? Personal, have a condition, is it restricted by a time reference? Answer those questions, you usually have your answer right away. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning, and I know that it's pretty academic just looking at just some of the issues that we'll be encountering as we look at the Gospel of Luke. And Father, I just pray for our time in Luke, however long that may be, that we would be so blessed. Father, I have been reading in that book and it just it just encourages me and warms my soul and makes me excited and humbles me. And Father, I just pray that you would allow me to study diligently so that I might be able to impart your truth to your people, knowing that your Holy Spirit will use that to transform people's lives, that people might be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth and repentance and faith in Christ Jesus. Father, I just pray that our whole body here would grow to know Jesus Christ in a more personal way, that we would fall in love with him more, and that in turn would cause us to want to obey, obey him with more diligence. And we pray all this in your name. Amen.